Good morning, everyone. I, um, I get this, like, unique privilege to come up and face all of you that I know is, like, unique to uh, standing behind this pulpit. And that's, it's a really encouraging thing to come to church as we come to worship together and just to see people that are also eager. You know, whatever's going on in life, we're, we're here. We're, we're here because we actually believe that every time we gather, that God the Father has something to tell us. That God the Son has something to give us. And that God the Spirit has something to do inside of us. And so it's just like a, a unique joy to see all of you, with the exception of Paul Burr, who's wearing a Michigan jersey, I think just to provoke uh, weakness in me. I don't know. So that I might rely on the Lord while I preach. Um, uh, but it is, it is a, a joy to do this. So we're in our, we're, we've been in our series of Revelation this fall. We're in chapter 2. And just as like the most briefest, briefest of, uh, of context is like we've gone through chapter one and we see that this is a vision given to the Apostle John. And in the beginning of Revelation, he sees this vision of Christ, right? In chapter one, it's Jesus and the descriptions of Jesus are meant to evoke our understanding of his complete and perfect power. And once we have established that Jesus has complete and perfect authority and sovereignty over everything, he begins to tell, uh, to speak to the angels of seven different churches. This is in chapter 2 now, where we find ourselves today. He has messages for each of these churches. It's interesting also, only two of these churches are completely like positive messages, where he doesn't also in his message include some sort of rebuke to them. For some way that they have failed to be faithful. Smyrna, the church that we come to today, is one of those churches. But before we begin, I just want to pray that the Spirit would speak to us. Just like Jesus tells this message to the church in Smyrna, that it would also be a message that would penetrate our hearts and help us to be faithful followers of Jesus. So let me pray for us now before we begin. Lord, I pray that now as we hear your word, you, in the only way that you can, would give power to this time of preaching, that you would give uh, your Spirit's work abundantly in our hearts, that we become more like Jesus, we would know you more fully, we would worship you more faithfully in every part of our life, and that you would move us from unbelief in these areas of unbelief that we have to areas of belief in your Son. We pray this in his name. Amen. There was a Christian pastor back in the 4th century. His name was Basil. And Basil recounts during one of his uh, sermons story of victims of persecution that had happened about a half century earlier. There was a governor, uh, emperor at the time of Rome, the Roman Empire, Emperor Licinius. And he had required people to reject Christianity or face persecution and death. Mainly because Christians refused to acknowledge that Caesar was Lord. Jesus was Lord to them. And that was a problem. And so Licinius sent word to all the governors of the different regions to begin rounding up Christians and tell them to change their ways, recant, or die. Basically tells the story then of one day uh, where the governor of the city of Sebast, which is located in 
uh, modern-day Turkey, tried persuasion, promises, and torture in an attempt to turn 40 Roman soldiers away from their belief in Christ. One day these soldiers were called before the governor and told to reject their faith in Jesus or face torture. When they refused, the governor ordered that they be executed. Now, Sebast, the place where this took place in modern-day Turkey, it was winter at the time that this happened. And so Basil recounts that the governor ordered that a fire and a warm bath be provided at the edge of a lake, but the soldiers be stripped of their clothes and sent out to the middle. If they repent of their faith in Jesus, they could come back to the fire, hop in the warm bath, avoid their suffering. In fact, Basil says the governor waited until a particularly cold evening when the weather was bad, when the wind was blowing and driving the temperature downward. When that night came, he ordered that they be sent to the middle of a frozen lake near the city. What does it look like to be faithful in the midst of that kind of persecution? What does it look like to be faithful to Jesus in the midst of that kind of suffering or pain? This is a question before the church of Smyrna in our text. It was the question that faced those soldiers. It's the question that echoes to today. If you want to follow an outline of where we're going this morning, I'm gonna, we'll, be, we'll be staying pretty anchored to the text in Roman, uh, Revelation chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, I'll keep it open there. But here, here's the outline. We're going to talk about the tribulation that faces this church in Smyrna. And we're going to talk about what that, the kind of temptation that that tribulation causes. And we'll wrap up with what, what the solution was for them. So the tribulation, the temptation, the solution... Smyrna, interestingly enough, is also uh, a city in Asia in modern-day Turkey today. Actually, Smyrna still exists to this day, though now if you wanted to look it up on a map, it would, you would have to look up Izmir. Izmir. Um, and there's some interesting facts about Smyrna's history. First of all, Smyrna was destroyed 600 years before Jesus lived and then rebuilt. The city was resurrected in 300 B.C. It also named itself the first city of Asia. The first among the city of Asia's. Listen to verse 8. How Jesus describes himself. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write. The words of the first. And the last. Who died. And came to life. Jesus introduces himself in a way that wouldn't be lost on first century hearers in the city of Smyrna. Right? who saw themselves in a city that had been dubbed the first among the cities. He says, I'm the first and the last. The city had, that had been destroyed and rebuilt. And Jesus says, I'm the one who died and came back to life. And then Jesus begins to talk about the tribulation that faces that church. And he says this. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those that say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. The, the tribulation that faces this church comes in a couple different ways. One of which is that there's great poverty facing the believers there in this city. This is not a wealthier church like we might find in Ephesus, right? This is a, this is a church that has faced persecution that has led them to poverty. 
One thing that I think is helpful to understand about the context that this church was facing is that there was a Jewish population in Smyrna that was persecuting them. We see this in this passage. We also know this from, from history. I, I don't know if any of you also struggle with dandelions every summer. My daughters love the dandelions. I do not love the dandelions. But no matter how hard I work, I put weed be gone on them. I, I, I dig them up by the roots. The next morning, they, they pop up. And there's, there's more that I need to stamp out. This is how the Jews treated the Christians of Smyrna. Like they couldn't get rid of them fast enough. But they were popping up all over the city. Now in this time, the Jewish people were like a protected subclass within the Roman Empire where they could follow their own religion without worry of persecution from the Romans. They could run their businesses and so on. Christians now, though, because of their refusal to acknowledge Caesar as Lord, were starting to cause problems in the Roman Empire. And many of these Christians were Jews. And they were worshiping a Savior who was Jewish. And the Jews feared that this cult that had sprung up all around them was going to ruin their protection as this, as this subclass that was able to live and prosper within the Roman Empire. So they wanted to stamp out the Christians in their city. Here's how they would do that. Like violence and looting was common. We actually have kind of a picture of this in, in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 10 says this. A similar struggle is described. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution, Hebrews says. Other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. You see how this could work itself out. This kind of persecution leading to poverty. And not just like the Christians in Smyrna were lower class. The Christians in Smyrna were destitute. They were destitute. Jesus says, I know that poverty is a tribulation that you are facing. But he also says there's another tribulation, which is that you're being slandered. How did the Jews approach trying to get rid of the Christians? They would slander them to the Roman government. It's the Romans that were putting them in jail, that had the power to execute them. So they would say, look at these Christians. Hey, there's a person who doesn't say Caesar is Lord. Hey, there's a person who doesn't say Caesar is Lord. Go get them. Round them up. Get them out of here. Jesus refers to this work that the Jews are doing as, listen to this, they're not, they say that they're Jews, but they're actually the synagogue of Satan. They're not doing the work that God's people were supposed to do. They're doing the work that the devil is doing. It's, it gets even more clear in verse 10 as we see this connection. He says, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. How does that happen? Because of the work of his synagogue. The Jews are doing, the Jews in the city that are persecuting the Christians are not looked favorably upon for this action. Here's the reality for the Christians in Smyrna. Things are bad. And Jesus says to them, I know things are bad. And they're going to get worse. That's what Jesus says. They're going to get worse. Things are bad and they're going to get worse. It's like, wow, that's so, so comforting, Jesus. 
Well, the reality is that, that this leads to then temptations that the church faces. We see these starting in verse 10 with the warnings and the commands that Jesus gives them, right? So in verse 10, first he says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Because fear is one of the temptations that the church could fall into. They could be afraid of what they were about to go through. The prison, the likely execution, the poverty continued. And he says, don't be afraid. The second is to be unfaithful. Again in verse 10, he says, be faithful unto death. Their temptation is to turn away from Christ. That's the solution. Just like it was for the soldiers, that's the solution for the church in Smyrna. To escape this persecution, to escape this poverty, they could abandon their Savior. And he says the test will last for ten days. You will have tribulation. The test is relatively brief. Relatively brief. This kind of figurative language is we find throughout the Old Testament of ten days referring to testing, right? Remember the test that happened in Exodus of the ten plagues? Remember the testing of Jacob in Genesis as ten different times his wages are changed while he tries to earn Rebekah as his wife? We see this again and again, this kind of language. So it's connected to they're going to go through something that will test their faithfulness to God. All of these temptations, though, the temptation to become afraid, the temptation to become unfaithful, they have something in common. Uh, during COVID, we were all trying to find things um, to pass the time as we were in lockdown. You remember these, these lockdown days? What are we going to do with another free evening? Everything is canceled. One of the things that we did is we actually made a pie. I FaceTimed my mom, who is in the building right now. Oh, hi, mom. We FaceTimed my mom. She makes this awesome French silk pie, okay? And so me and the twins, Amanda knows how to make pie. She did not need to be on this FaceTime, okay? But I needed help. So we got the phone up. We're mixing things. We're, we're getting the, the French silk pie ready. It's going to be great. We make the French silk pie. It looks awesome, right? The twins and I were so proud of our work. We sit down to eat it, all of us around the table. We take a bite. Oh, man. Dad, this is kind of salty. <laughs> it's like, take a bite. This is kind of salty. It's like, this is too salty. You know, this is almost inedibly salty. I called my mom. I was like, Mom, what was wrong with your recipe? It's not like I thought it was. She's like, well, what did you do? I was like, I don't know. It's like really salty. And she's like, how much salt did you put in? And I was like, I don't know, two tablespoons. She's like, the recipe is teaspoons. You know, I don't know. <laughs> using, the wrong, using the wrong metric can be disastrous for the outcome. This is also true of our faith with Jesus, in Jesus and our faithfulness. That if we use the wrong metric to determine if God is good and if he is faithful, it will lead to disaster in our walks with the Lord. Listen to me carefully. If your metric for if God is good is because things in your life are good, that's the wrong metric for judging his goodness. You say, oh, my job is going well. I... I have a nice girlfriend, um, I, I really like what I do, I, I'm just excited about the future, God is good. He's also good when everything falls apart. So the metric that we judge him can't be our circumstances. It can't be how good things are going. During their, um, <clears throat> excuse me, 
if listen, if all we see if all we focus on in, in our walk with the Lord and all we see right in front of us is our wants and our desires and our successes and our opportunities, it's going to be easier for Satan to knock us off the path of faith, faithfulness than it will be for ice cream to melt in the summertime. If you measure God's goodness based on your possessions and your salary, your health, your children's obedience, your grades, how nice your college roommate is, I don't, whatever it is, the, the moment your circumstances take a turn for the worse, your faith in God takes a turn for the worse because the metric you are using to judge whether he was good and worthy of your faith and your obedience has fallen apart. That's not why God is good and faithful. That's not what determines his goodness and his faithfulness. We need to use the right metric. Jesus also encourages the church in Smyrna to use the right metric. We're going to get there very shortly. But suffering becomes exponentially more difficult. Not less real. Not less real. But more difficult if you evaluate who you are and who God is more by your feelings and your circumstances than by how his word tells us what he's like. Things are bad and they're going to get worse, Jesus tells the church. But he in this very same passage also says, things are good and they're going to get better. Do you see it? He says, I know your poverty. But look at the little parentheses. But you're actually rich. In a truer sense, they're destitute in real life, but in a truer sense, we know from the Beatitudes when Jesus says, blessed are you and people persecute you and revile you. Because what? Rejoice and be glad. Because why? Because great is your reward in heaven. You are rich. He says, I know you're being slandered, but don't trust what Satan says. Trust what I say. And what I say is that the one who conquers won't be hurt by the second death. He says, I know you might be in prison and killed. But listen to what I say. I say, I'm the one who died and came back to life. I've defeated death. I get the final say. And because Jesus claims himself to be the solution, he can claim our dedication and our faithfulness for himself. Not because our circumstances are good, but because he himself is good. It's like, what affliction faces you? It doesn't have to be persecution. It could just be pain or regret or suffering. I don't know what faces you this morning, but the solution, how do you be faithful in the midst of that? Is Jesus. Look to Jesus. During their trial, the, government, the governor tried to tempt the 40 soldiers with, with bribery, right? He, says, he said this. He said, don't exchange an untimely death for this sweet life. It's absurd for those who have gained the prize of, for valor in war to die the death of criminals. And after he said this, he offers them honors from the emperor, money, positions of power. Do you know how they responded? Basil quotes the soldiers as saying, you give money which stays behind. Glory which fades. You make us known to the emperor, but alienate us from the one who is truly emperor. When the 40 soldiers had refused the governor's bride, he threatened them with torture and punishment. Do you know how they responded to that? Basil recounts that one of them steps forward and says, I count your blows as children's arrows. You have not met with cowardly people, nor those who love this life, nor with those who are easily scared because of our love for God. Listen, my friends, Gospel Life Church, we can be unfaithful. We could turn away. I've had more friends turn away from being faithful to Christ in the last three years than I, thought, than I ever thought I would. 
It's, it happens, and it's happening. So how do we guard our heart against it? If we look at this church in Smyrna, it's not like a, some trivial thing that they're facing, you know? It's not a minor, like, inconvenience. But it, hard things may happen in our life. Our, our, our businesses may go bankrupt because of what we believe the Bible says is true about sexuality. That's a reality in America today. And will continue to be even more so. There's a chance that you could lose your job because you refuse, refuse to steal or lie. There's a chance that you could be slandered by the world because the world hates the message that they're sinful. That we are sinful and we need a savior. It's not just persecution that can tempt us though. It's also pain in general. And the pain and the suffering that faced this church in Smyrna was real. The culture was intolerant of their ethics. They're threatened by their freedom. They're offended by their beliefs. And now they're destitute, poor, slandered, heading to prison, to trial where they'll likely be executed. And Jesus' answer was not to change their circumstances. I can't emphasize that enough. His answer was not to change their circumstances. He says, be faithful, be faithful. Death is coming, be faithful. Torture may be coming, be faithful. Don't be afraid. Who can follow that command unless they think that the treasure for being faithful is greater than what they'll lose? This passage is going to give you whiplash if you come to the, the you know you come to the table with some misguided assumptions about what Christianity promises you. Christianity does not promise us a comfortable life. It does promise us that we'll be comforted. Christianity does not promise us the approval of man. It does promise us the approval of God. Christianity does not guarantee you treasure in this life. It does guarantee you treasure in heaven. Your faithfulness does not ensure that your life will be without pain. But it does guarantee that you will have eternal life without pain when Christ returns. When the soldiers heard from the governor their sentence to die, to go out to that frozen lake, Basil writes that with great joy they took off even their last tunic and ran out to the middle. They began to chant that the Lord would keep the 40 of them strong until the end. It's an honorable number, they said. Let not even one person be missing of those who are crowned. While into the night, one of the soldiers couldn't bear it any longer, and he left for the warm bath and the fire. But Basil says that a guard who was in charge of watching the bath and the fire saw the joy that these men had in the midst of great suffering, took off his clothes and ran into the middle to join them. Forty soldiers died that night, but they were forty who had great joy in the midst of incredible pain. And suffering because they evaluated their life based on the belief that Jesus was the greatest treasure, that He is the greatest reward. Amanda and I pray the same prayer for our girls every single night. There's a lot we could pray for, right? In this way, we could pray for their behavior, <laughs> we, could, we could pray for things at school to be for them to be quick learners, for them to be basketball stars, all these things that I want for them. <laughs> um, You know, we could pray for real 
fears we have about, like, fears we shouldn't have as I think about this passage right now, live in front of you. We can think about things about our world that we're concerned that they're going to face as they get older. But the prayer that we pray every single day is, God, I want you, I pray that our girls would know you early and love you always. It's very simple. Why do we pray that? Because for a man and I, Jesus is the treasure we want them to cling to more than anything else. He's what we want them to have more than good grades and good successes and good achievements in life. He's what we want them to have forever. Because he's the thing that will actually last. He's the thing that will actually bring them joy and peace when life is hard, which it will be for all of us, for, for Muslims and Buddhists and, 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 and our Hindu friends and Christians. It will be hard. It's a fallen world. It may be particularly hard as we remain faithful to Christ. But Jesus is the solution. Jesus looks at this church in Smyrna. He says, I know you're facing persecution, poverty, and slander. I'm not going to change your circumstances. In fact, what I'm going to do is command your obedience in the midst of them. I'm going to say, it's bad, it's getting worse, and I want you to remain faithful. How can he say that? This is a hard pill to swallow unless you see that Jesus is the greatest treasure, that he's going to remain with them. He's the solution. He's the faithful one. We'll close with this. Jesus goes, you keep reading down. He says, you may be tested for ten days. You'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the kind of hopefulness that can lead to faithfulness in present pain. The future hope and the future joy. The words of the first and the last, the one who died and came to light. What does that mean? It means that he's sovereign over your past. It means he's in control of the present. It also means that he has power over your future. We go through pain in this life. And the temptation that we face is is what? I think there's three things. The, the lies that we can believe about God in the midst of hard things happening. I think there's three things. One thing we can believe is that God doesn't know. He must not know. Because if he knew, and he's good, he would do something about this thing that I'm going through. But what does Christ say? Verse 9. I know your tribulation. You go through a hard thing in your life. Something that is really painful for you. God knows. second line we might believe is that he just doesn't care. He just doesn't care. And do you want to know why we can rule this out as a, as a potential possibility that he doesn't care? The same reason that Jesus can say he died and came to life. Because we saw him go to the cross for us. So the one thing that we can rule out as we look to the cross is that God doesn't care. He loves us so much he sent his son to die for us. This is important because things in our life might be bad and guys, they might, it might get worse. The cancer might spread. The money might run out. It might. It does. The, the hope might go unfulfilled. It might. But God knows, 
and he cares. And the third lie is that he can't do anything about it. We know that's a lie because of the very last thing in this passage. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Will not be hurt by the second death. God is going to do something about it. It's not like this magic potion, abracadabra, you're going through something hard, believe, you know, name it and claim it, and God will change it in that instant. It's like, no, but we know that in eternity he will make things right. We know that when he comes back, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. <laughs> you know, like Norm shared from the end of Revelation, that there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering when he returns. He knows, and he cares. And yes, things might be bad, and they might get worse. It might be really terribly difficult. And the only way that you'll get through it is because you believe in, in your heart that actually in the midst of great pain, things are good and they're going to get better. It's a paradox that only Christianity offers. And so the Savior says, be faithful. The Savior who knows and the Savior who cares and the Savior who can do something about it. I hear Christians, um, I hear Christians sometimes say like, I, I cannot, I can't keep going, I can't endure, I can't obey, I, I can't submit, I can't agree with the Bible on this issue. I can't be faithful. You know, I can't stop gossiping. I can't stop sinning in this way. I can't give up my pride. I cannot change. I can barely be faithful when things are going good. How does God expect me to be faithful when things are going horribly? What do you say to someone when they tell you that? Do you know what you say? You agree with them. You say, you're right. You can't. Not on your own strength. Not on your own power, but, but Christians don't rely on their own strength to be faithful. The church in Smyrna isn't some special group of people. Look at them. Of all the seven churches, only two of them didn't get rebuked. Oh, this church in Smyrna, they must be so great. They're faithful because the Spirit has worked inside of them to do something that they can't do themselves. So you tell people when they say, I can't change, I can't follow the Lord, I can't do these things. You say, no, I, I agree. You, you can't. But Christ in you can. And telling a group of people that are facing the kind of stuff that the church in Smyrna faces isn't like, it's no small thing. It's not something you can be made flippantly. But it's not made flippantly. It's made by the king who has suffered with them who has suffered for them, who reaches out to them, not like we think Jesus, oh man, he must be nice. He's in heaven in luxury on his throne, reigning. But he also was in pain on the cross with nail-pierced hands. Those same hands reach out to us in the midst of our pain. I just have one more thing, and that's it for this morning. We have this manuscript from 160 AD, so just over a century after Christ died. And the manuscript describes the martyrdom of one of the first church uh, leaders named Polycarp. Polycarp was an old man at the time that he was executed for his faith in Jesus. And actually, Polycarp is inter interesting because tradition has it that he was the last person that knew an apostle. The last living person. Because he was so old when he died, and tradition had it that he was discipled by who? By the Apostle John, who wrote Revelation. But Polycarp, along with others from his church, 
uh, were found, were put on trial, and were told to recant or be burned at the stake. When Polycarp was told to recant, do you want to know what he said? He said, 86, year, 86 years I have served my Savior, and he has never done me harm. How can I blaspheme him now? Polycarp was killed that day. Polycarp was the Bishop of Smyrna. Romans 8 says this, Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory which he will reveal in us later. All the pain and the suffering and the despair of this life is nothing compared to the joy that awaits us as we faithfully follow the one who is victorious, the one who is the first and the last, the one who died and came back to life. Amen? Brothers and sisters, be faithful. Rely on the Spirit to make it so. As we look to the sun for a hope that goes beyond our circumstances now.